Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. It is 1940. Fred Lawson has been captured in a prisoner of war camp behind enemy lines. In his cell, his thoughts return to the isolated Scottish island of St Kilda, where he once took a summer job as a youth, and to the island woman Chrissy, who he can't forget. Five days in darkness, deep as a pit, and my mind begins to play tricks. I hear the silences singing, a faint choir in a distant room. Gaelic? English? Not Jerry, that's for sure. Sometimes it's the darkness itself, blooming into images that swell and fade on the air, fueled, no doubt, by the throbbing in my hand. Two nails gone, pulled out by the gasapo. Worst of all is when the air becomes solid and I gasp, heart hammering, sweat on my palms. Then the only escape is to hold my mind steady and stand on my island again looking out at the Atlantic and the curve of white sand around the bay. But St Kilda is not now what Fred remembers. In this edition of Historical Fiction, History Hits' Alice Roberts talks to novelist Elizabeth Gifford. Her new book, The Lost Lights of St Kilda, is a moving portrait of two lovers, a desolate island, and the extraordinary power of hope in the face of darkness. This is Historical Fiction. So, Elizabeth, could you just give a brief overview of the novel? It starts off with a soldier who is in a prisoner of war camp in 1940. And the thing that keeps him going is his memory of a girl he loved and lost on the island of St Kilda. So the soldier's name is Fred, and he visited St Kilda with his friend Archie as a student to carry out a geological and archaeological survey and met a village girl there called Chrissy. But through a misunderstanding, they lost touch. And it's the impetus of the war and trying to escape home to Scotland that sets him on a mission to find Chrissy once again. Can you tell us a bit about St Kilda, this island? Where is it exactly and how long have people been living there? St Kilda is the most remote of all the Scottish islands. It's 100 miles out from the mainland and 50 miles out from the Outer Hebrides. It's been inhabited for two to 4,000 years by various communities, but it was evacuated in 1927 
when life became too precarious and a lady there died from appendicitis and the villagers almost starved because they were cut off by the winter storms with no communication. So before that evacuation, what was life like on the island in the early 20th century? How different was it to other people's lives in the British Isles and how disconnected was it? Well, St Kilda was famous all through the 19th century and even by Victorian standards it was considered a bit of a anomaly because people lived a lifestyle that was almost a hunter-gatherer lifestyle very simply, communally. And in the 20th century, they began to catch up and had various things such as money on the island. At times they had radio communication, but it's always been a sort of lost in time island with quite an idyllic lifestyle in terms of contentment and communal spirit. People ate what was produced on the island, made their own clothes, helped each other. But with the advent of the 20th century and the use of money and communications becoming more frequent with the mainland, then the young people began to leave the island and people started to buy more than they made. And finally, what was a very unique community was lost. Although having said that, it was also a very Hebridean community and a lot of their lifestyle was very like the lifestyle you would have seen in the Hebrides a hundred years ago, perhaps a little more extreme. And I wanted to record something of that before the feeling for it was lost and it became just a historic event. You talked about the evacuation which happened in August 1930, where the last 36 islanders voted to leave as their way of life was just no longer sustainable. And in the novel, we see the before and after of this evacuation. So what happened to the islanders after they left? Where did they go and what became of the island that they left behind? Well, the islanders were pretty much scattered across the Scottish mainland. A lot of them ended up working for the Forestry Commission, which was interesting because they didn't have any trees on St Kilda. Some went to Oban, but it was a shock for them because they'd always lived in a community and now they were quite far apart. And some of the houses were a distance from shops. They had to learn to use money. They had to learn to fill in forms. I think the ones who lived near Oban, they lived near the minister, who was the last minister on the island, and he helped them with various aspects. But the sad thing is, a lot of them didn't live very long. Quite a few succumbed to TB. They had very low immunity to the general coughs and colds of the mainland. Every time a boat came in, they would catch flu. But I think TB was endemic to a lot of the Hebrides, and one family in particular already had it on the island. And I think they were probably quite run down with their poor diet for a long time. So when the islanders joined Scottish mainland society or other islands in Scotland, did they fit in well or were they excluded? There was a slight feeling that maybe they were asking for too much charity because over time they'd been in the national newspapers as people sent out rescue missions. The Daily Mail at one point sent out a boat full of supplies at an earlier time when they um, were very cut off and almost starved. So they were slightly famous for being a national cause. But in fact, they didn't really cost the government very much because the sale of their cattle and flocks paid for a lot of the evacuation. But generally they fitted in very well. They spoke Gaelic at the time. People still spoke a lot of Gaelic in the Highlands. 
they joined church communities, they're very spiritual people and uh, very hard working. So over time they were absorbed into the communities and you'll still find a lot of people in the Highlands and Islands and Scotland who will say they had a relative or they're descended from a St Kilda evacuee, yes. Can you tell me about the island today? It's a World Heritage Site and the National Trust for Scotland run the maintenance programme for the village so that it doesn't go into further disrepair. And also there's a military base there, which I think has just been rebuilt so that it fits in with the island because it was a collection of quite incongruous port cabins. So in fact, communication with St Kilda has never been better. Yes, it was evacuated really because they wouldn't send a mail boat. And in fact, they agreed to send the mail boat just as they're being evacuated, which is ironic that it was too late by then. With the advent of the Second World War, the lives of your characters are thrown into turmoil, uh, with some fighting under the 51st Division in France. Can you tell us about the 51st Division and the part that they played in the Second World War? The 51st Highland Division was mostly made up of Scottish regiments, the Seaforths, Camerons and Black Watch, and they made up one of the main divisions in the early part of the war. But when the war suddenly ended up with the troops being driven back to Dunkirk, as is famously known, the 51st Highland Division were actually a bit further down, fighting alongside the French. And they managed to get to St Valery, just below Dunkirk. But by the time they got there, it was really too late to be evacuated. The fog came down and it's a very tiny area that you have to evacuate the men. So they were completely caught and uh, after a couple of days of fierce fighting, French surrendered and then the 51st had to surrender and 10,000 of the Scottish troops were marched away to German prison camps in mostly Poland. And you write about these terrible experiences of the Scottish soldiers and many hold on to this distant memory of their homes and loved ones as an incentive to survive. A theme in your book, particularly for the Scottish soldiers, seems to be this memory of bonnie Scotland and the wild beauty and intense isolation of the Highlands, echoing Walter Scott, romantic movement, ideas of the sublime, that sort of thing. This much I know, that I was born on an island far from here, a place called St Kilda, although we left there before I could form any useful memories. So the island is doubly lost to me. My mother doesn't like to talk about St Kilda. There's no use in looking back, Rachel Ann, she says. This is our life now and we must make the best of it. How important was this 18th and 19th century romance of Scotland to these Scottish soldiers in the Second World War? Well, I think actually they would mostly have been very practical men who were used to resting a life from crofts and fishing. The point of crofting is that you're not quite able to make enough to live on, you also have to do something else like fishing. So I don't think they would have had a romantic idea of Scotland if they came from the Highlands and the Islands. That was probably seen as an English conceit really, that Scotland was very romantic and people yomped around in kilts. But I think it would probably be the idea of hope and homeland because they were also very close-knit communities, very educated, very content people often. So I think it's more a question of hope. And while I was writing the book, I did try and steer away from any ideas of Misty Brigadoon because I was much more interested in trying to reconstruct the actual history 
as a form perhaps of preserving things that do fall into the mist once you've lost the facts. And in fact, the person we used to stay with while I was writing the book, who lives in the Hebrides, he said, oh, they all come here to write about misty Scotland and sort of put their stories on the island. So it's, it's a great compliment to me when people say, you know, this is not your idea of the island, this feels like the real island that you're writing about, the real Scottish island. So that was the aim anyway, to sort of give people the actual history and facts and then they can work with it in their own response. Really. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. And the First and Second World Wars have provided settings for many heart-wrenching romances mm. of lovers torn apart by terrible circumstance, atonement, birdsong, Pearl Harbor, and so on. Mm. And your book plays its part in that genre. Why do you think wartime is such a powerful setting for romantic fiction? Well, I suppose when you look at one's own family history, it does seem absolutely devastating the things that happened to people and the effect it had on relationships and families. So I think there's a lot of personal interest in what has been handed down a form of trauma and stress on relationships in wartime. For example, Douglas, to whom the book is dedicated, went over as a 19-year-old soldier with the Normandy Landing Force. He spent about four years just writing to his fiancée before they came home and eventually married. So I think it really factually is a time of great stress on relationships. You do wonder how people coped, yeah. Now, you've written about two pieces of history, both which could be powerful stories on their own. How does it change each piece of history to be contextualised against the other? Yes. Well, how it came about is that I'd started researching soldiers in the Highlands and I was also researching some family history in Madrid where my husband's grandfather lived during the Second World War with his wife, working for what's now Barclays Bank, I think. He was part of a ring around the British Embassy in Madrid 
where they were smuggling through and hiding escapees from occupied France, servicemen and Jewish people. So I was researching that end and I was interested how many Scottish seemed to be involved in this. And then I looked into Donald Caskey, who was mentioned, and he's a Scottish minister in Marseille who ran a seamen's mission for merchant seamen, but he was actually smuggling through and hiding tens and hundreds of escaping servicemen, mostly Scottish, and he would help them make the journey over the Pyrenees. So I thought I'd always wanted to join up the two ends and actually see what it was like for one of these Scottish soldiers and how they actually got all the way down to the Pyrenees across and home again. So that was the interest. And the narrative of the Lost Lights of St Kilda is not dictated by chronology or character. It jumps backwards and forwards between generations, between 1927 and 1940. Lots of the story is narrated through recounting memories. Why did you choose this narrative style compared to a straightforward chronological single character narrative? I think it's a narrative style that's very useful when discovering about the past changes the present experience for the characters, which I quite like for a historical novel because often discovering about history has the same effect on the reader. The past intrudes into the present in various ways. And also it was part of the story that people had to go back and reflect on what they thought they knew and reassess things. In your novel, one of the islanders, Chrissy, complains that tourists from the mainland come and gawk at the islanders and laugh at them as backwards and poor. And I think she finds it quite patronising. So how did you go about trying to avoid encouraging these pre-existing trivialisations? Yes, well, first of all, I didn't claim or pretend to be writing about any of the actual islanders. So I felt I owed them their privacy in that way. But on the other hand, the most important source for me for writing the story is a book called St Kilda Portraits, which is really a collection of accounts and diaries from people on the island. So although I was writing fictional characters, I tried very hard to keep to their actual circumstances so that people would see things from the eyes of the islanders and not as a tourist might look at them, because it was a real issue that they did feel sometimes a bit like animals in a zoo with the visitors. Could you just tell us about your historical methods? You say you've mentioned that one source, but did you go to the island? Have you met any islanders or their descendants? Have you read any diaries or visitor accounts? I think I pretty much read all the books I could find on St Kilda, and we were lucky enough to make a trip out there after a couple of full starts with C. Harris and spent just a day there. But I did quite a lot of preparation. And I think one of the things that really helped was spending quite a lot of time on the nearest island or islands, which is Harris, Lewis and Lewis. So the culture on St Kilda was in a way part of that general culture. And although specific also to the island. And when we started going to the Hebrides about 20 years ago, I was lucky enough to both meet people, elderly people, who would have been of that generation of young people who left the island and children, and also to sometimes hear stories about Hebridean crofters from the person I stayed with on the island, artist Willie Fulton and Drina Shadder and his wife, and they had the most amazing fund of 
first-hand stories. For example, when Willie first moved to Harris and during the shadow, he met an elderly crofter and, oh, hello, how are you? Thinking, you know, quite condescendingly, he admits. And that person ended up actually to be Professor MacDonald, who was famously known as Padre Mac, who was the chaplain in the prison of war camps for the 51st and other soldiers in the Second World War. So I was quite lucky to have that background of knowing the islands from an outsider's point of view. So from that, it was a bit easier to reconstruct the life on St Kilda as respectfully as possible. Obviously, it is a historical novel, so the rule I go by is to not make up facts, to try and stick to them, but obviously to fill in the gaps that are missing but using research. That is the interesting thing for me, is to do that kind of fictional archaeology. Can you tell me about your relationship with history? Why is history important to you and have you always been interested in the past? I think so. I would like to know a lot more about my Irish background and I feel that's really exciting, but it's really not possible because the great-grandfather who must have left Dublin around about the time of the famine and moved to Manchester didn't have the means to keep records and family records, I think, were blown up in the Easter Rising. And anything about my grandfather, my Irish grandfather, there might have been records in the war records, but that church was also blown up in the war. But um, I feel I'd really like to find out more about that, but it just seemed too difficult. Whereas when we visited the Hebrides, it felt as if the connection to the Gaelic culture there and the Scottish Gaelic language and stories and legends were very present and real and sort of touchable. In fact, there's quite a lot of things like old mill wheels would just be lying there and archaeology. So I sort of felt it would be fun to explore that heritage and try and record some of it as it's probably changing and disappearing a bit. And I just love history. I've always read it a lot. So what do you read in your spare time? Oh, everything really. I did French literature at Leeds as part of a French degree and also... Um, theological studies, so I enjoyed reading um, lots of Sufi poetry and things. I'm, I'm very widely happy to read anything really, but I do enjoy actual stories told in a evocative way. And you were saying earlier that you were the daughter of a vicar. How has that influenced your writing? Apparently there's a lot of vicar's daughters who end up writing and I think it is a very wordy background. You sort of sit through the sermons. I think I was still hearing the King James Bible and the Tudor liturgy when I first went to church service as a child. And lots of reflection and I think it does actually make a space for using language and imagining Elizabeth Gifford, it's been a delight to chat to you about your book, The Lost Lights of St Kilda. Thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. Historical Fiction Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.